Welcome to Life on Life, Lesson 11, Deep Wholehearted Discipleship. And we could have started here, but we decided to make this the final lesson of our first unit, Gospel Foundations, because this lesson serves as a summary of where we've been and a chance to highlight the overarching goal of these Life on Life groups. The goal is not to make us smarter or more informed. The goal is to see the people of City Church transformed uh, from the inside out by the gospel of God's grace. We want to see the men and women of our church become mature, equipped disciples of Jesus. We want to become men and women who are learning to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. In one sentence, we want to see deep, wholehearted discipleship. The writer Arthur Brooks tells this story. In 1896, a man in Dummerston, Vermont, was driven from his beloved home over what should have been a minor family dispute. He generally got along well with his brother-in-law, who lived next door. One day in an argument, however, the brother-in-law, who was a bit of a hothead, threatened to punch him. In reaction, the man had his brother-in-law arrested, which the neighbor saw as a massive overreaction. At the trial, the man acted haughty and arrogant toward others, and according to newspaper accounts, he became so unpopular for his attitude and actions that, shunned by local residents, he felt compelled to leave the town he loved, and he never returned. This man could certainly have used some advice on keeping things in perspective. One great example by the poet Rudyard Kipling, written some months earlier. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. Verse by verse, the poem titled If dispenses the soundest counsel on how to keep petty conflicts from blowing up into major life disruptions. Had he heeded that wise poem, the unfortunate man in Vermont could have left the altercation, could have let it run off him and not overreacted, not talked down to others. He could have repaired the relationship and gotten on with his life. But in fact, he was familiar with the poem If, though the poem was not published until years after the spat. For the overreacting man was none other than Kipling himself. Kipling was not a hypocrite, rather he was simply unable to take the excellent advice he had offered to others. It's a version of what's come to be known as Solomon's Paradox, named after the wise king from the Bible who failed to live by his own wisdom, uh, leading to the demise of his kingdom. Researchers find that this sort of behavior is strikingly common. Rudyard Kipling and King Solomon are sad reminders that knowing the right thing to do and doing it are often two very different things. In Lesson 3, we talked about discipleship as the primary mission Jesus gives His church, that above all else, we are to make disciples. Recall that Dallas Willard described a disciple as a person who had decided the most important thing in life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. A disciple is not a person who has things under control or knows a lot. Disciples are simply people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. And we lamented that in most churches, discipleship has become an optional extra reserved for only the super committed 
rather than the common expectation for anyone who professes faith. Too often our understanding of discipleship has been narrowed down to learning certain doctrines. You hear it in the phrase Christian education or Sunday school, which are often used interchangeably with local church discipleship programs as if the primary deficit in our walk with Christ was a lack of knowing the right information. And to be sure, there's an important place for learning Christian theology. The gospel has propositional content, and the Apostle Paul urged us to watch our doctrine closely. Some of the most famous verses of the Old Testament are Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. For thousands of years, this has been the prayer recited every morning by devout Jewish men and women. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And in the New Testament, when he was asked, which is the greatest commandment, Jesus recited Deuteronomy 6, and he added, with all your mind. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these, Jesus said. Historian Mark Knoll claims that this edition of All Your Mind was revolutionary and it made learning and knowledge a centerpiece of the Christian faith. When it comes to the value of education and intellect, Christianity has a great legacy. Most of the great universities in the Western world were formed by Christians with an explicit commitment to faith and reason. Following Christ and following truth need never compete or contradict. We are to love God with all of our mind. And yet, in Jesus' own language, it's fair to say there are other ingredients of what it means to know God that have been obscured or overlooked. For instance, what does it mean to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength? Dallas Willard referred to the lack of emphasis on discipleship in the local church as the great omission. He lamented that the gospel had become reduced to what he called a barcode faith, a message of sin management, wherein if people simply learn the right words to say, they can go to heaven when they die, as if salvation were primarily about the next life rather than living God's eternal life here and now. Over 1,600 years ago, St. Augustine said every Christian should strive to be a theologian, a mystic, and a servant. That is, that we should want to know God better with all of our minds, a theologian, but also experience God more deeply in our hearts, a mystic, so that we might serve Him and others more faithfully with our hands, a servant. We may naturally tend to gravitate to one of these more than the other two, but all three, head, heart, and hands, are needed if we are to press on to know God in the way God intends for us to know Him. Augustine's ancient image captures our target, deep, wholehearted discipleship. That's our phrase for what it means to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. I'm fascinated by the science of the human brain and the books and podcasts that have emerged in the last few years about how the brain works. Your brain has two hemispheres, right and left, that look similar but perform very different functions. Brain scientists are learning much more about how the right and left brain interact with one another. The left side of the brain is home to our linear, logical, rational thought. 
The right side handles our intuitions and emotions, our creativity and imagination. Many of us tend to think of ourselves as rational creatures, most often reasonable people who sometimes have different feelings here and there. We suppose our left brain often leads and that our right brain often follows. We think that we see ourselves and others clearly. In his groundbreaking book, The Master and His Emissary, Dr. Ian McGilchrist argues that in fact we are most often led by the right side of our brains. That's the real master. And that we tend to use our reason only after we've made a decision to justify the choices we've made. For McGilchrist, rationalizing is the emissary, the servant. If anything, he says, we are predictably irrational, often driven by our unconscious desires. We are prone to bias, that is, we are prone not to see ourselves or others clearly. As one neuroscientist, Antonio Damasio, puts it, humans are not either thinking machines or feeling machines, but rather feeling machines that think. We're not rational creatures who feel, we are emotional creatures who rationalize. We are creatures of desire. We're controlled far more by our hearts than by our heads. These breakthroughs in modern science might explain why emotional intelligence is such a hot field right now, especially in business, because a growing body of evidence reveals that success in life and business relies on our abilities to recognize emotions in ourselves and in others. This interest in emotional intelligence has spurred, has, excuse me, has spread to the church, where a growing number of voices are recognizing emotional health is intrinsic to spiritual health, that we have too long ignored or suppressed our emotions and our feelings, that it's impossible to separate spiritual health and emotional health. Emotional health includes being aware of our own emotions, aware of how our past has shaped our presence, present, aware of the hurt and pains that we carry, and most of all aware that we are uh, motivated uh, by desires and patterns often beyond our conscious awareness. So to become self-aware, we must become more aware of our hearts. In their book on the Psalms, Tremper Longman and Dan Allender call our emotions cries of the heart. Rather than bottling them up or denying them, we must learn to tend to our emotions. Emotions are data. Tend to them without being led by them. I grew up in a family where I was encouraged to stuff my emotions. Feeling sad or scared was seen as a weakness to be avoided at all cost. So I became well-trained to focus on the left side of my brain, linear logical thinking, and shut down my feelings. But emotions are signals calling for our curiosity and our attention. Emotions are signposts pointing us to pay attention to something, just like the dashboard of a car has engine lights to tell you something's going on under the hood. So our emotions are like the engine lights of the human heart, calling your attention to something important that has been touched or threatened. Even if most of this is news to you, the story of Rudyard Kipling probably sounds all too painfully familiar. His head told him to do one thing. He knew what he should do, be patient, not react, guard his tongue, not get swept up. But his heart reacted differently because it was filled with hurt and anger, believing he'd been slighted. In the furnace of stress, the desires of his heart 
trumped the reasons of his head. There was a gap between his head and heart. Forgive me for what may seem like a detour on modern brain science, but I find this uh, research deeply engaging, deeply ironic, and very biblical. Engaging because in my own life I've learned firsthand, rather painfully, about the disconnect that can exist between our heads and our hearts. I've learned what it feels like when the left brain and right brain are not integrated, or in simpler terms, when we can have all the right words and yet still feel stuck or stagnant, not experiencing God's goodness. We can know the right things to say about God, but feel cut off from His love and peace. Jesus warns against people who have all the right words, but whose hearts are far from Him. Paul describes the old self as hardened and feeling no pain. In terms of what Jesus says is the most important commandment, I loved God with my mind, but then I loved the Lord with all my heart and soul and strength. And what does that even mean? I preached on these verses, but realized in my own experience I did not know. And that's why I find these revolutions in neuroscience and social science ironic, because in a very real sense, they're simply rediscovering ancient biblical wisdom. So let's finally look one more time at what Jesus says is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. First of all, notice we were made to love, that we are creatures of desire. I mentioned Augustine earlier, but that was his most basic definition of sin. Sin is misdirected love. It is disordered love. That's a profound observation about what it means to be created in the image of God, that we will inevitably love as our Creator loves. But the question is whether our loves are rightly ordered and rightly directed. Loving anything more than we love God, the Bible's word for this is idolatry. Idolatry is disordered love. And Augustine says, this is the heart of sin. I find this to be an incredibly passionate way to understand human sin. We think that what we are pursuing will give us the happiness and security we desperately seek. Love is the seed in us of every virtue and of every vice. How pitiable we are when our love is pointed at the wrong target. It's something bound to let us down and disappoint the desires of our heart. But notice, Jesus doesn't simply call us to love God. He calls us to love the Lord, your God. That is, the God who came down to live among us in Jesus Christ. Jesus commands us to love the God who loved us first, even before we ever thought about loving him. This God who already loves us is your God. Dale Bruner says the one word, your, has the whole gospel in it. This is where the gospel takes root in our hearts. He is the God of my life. Jesus gave himself to rescue me. God loves me and gave his son to die for me. The love that Jesus asks of us is an answering love, not a cold, abstract command to love God, but a request to love the Lord, your God. And how are we to love the Lord, your God? Jesus says, with all your heart. It's in this word heart, above all other words in the Bible, that we see the ancient Hebrew understanding of what it means to be a human being, that it was deep, complex, and always integrated. For today, when we hear the word heart, we tend to think of our feelings, something opposed to our head or distinct from our bodies. But in the Bible, the Hebrew word for heart carries the sense of heart, will, and mind in English. 
Lev in Hebrew is what today we call the center of our lives. When the Bible mentions the heart, it's referring not only to our emotional life, but to the central animating center of all we do. The heart is the seat of our desires. It's our motivational headquarters. It's why we do everything we do. We live out of our hearts, and every decision we make is a decision of the heart. Our heart is not a part of who we are, but biblically speaking, the center of who we are. The heart drives and directs our lives, which is why Solomon advises us to guard it with all diligence. That's what Jesus is after, and that's what has to change, not our behavior, even our intentions. The heart is the target. So we're called to love God with all our heart. That doesn't mean we only love God and nothing else. It means that we can only love anything in the way we're supposed to if we love God first and most and above all. And then his love for us will order and guide every other love we have. That's why C.S. Lewis once said, properly speaking, we can never love anything too much because if we love them more than we love God, we don't actually love them well or as much as we could if we love God first and most. It's his love that enables us to love others without putting demands on them to meet our deepest needs. Here is in all cases, God commands us, God's command is an expression of his love for us. He commands us to love him first because he knows our hearts can only rest when we love him best. In commanding us to love our God with all of our heart, Jesus is inviting us into a joyful life. The big point here is that God is not just after our right thinking or right doing, but our hearts, the center of who we are, which will often be manifest in our emotions. This shouldn't surprise us given that the longest book of the Bible, the Psalms, is filled with all sorts of cries of the heart, emotions. Emotional health is not just integral to spiritual health. It turns out to be a litmus test. Have you ever considered that most of what we call the fruit of the Spirit, that these happen to be emotions, love, joy, peace, patience, expressed in relationships, kindness, goodness, gentleness? And there it is, the integration of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors expressed in our characters, flowing out of our hearts and our relationships with others. In Matthew 22, Jesus permanently links our love of God with our love of neighbor, showing that in God's eyes, the spiritual and the social are always connected. The idea that we are deeply integrated, embodied souls, hearts, and minds isn't just good science. It happens to be biblical wisdom contained in one Hebrew word, lave. Deep, wholehearted discipleship integrates our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. We are to be rooted and grounded, the Bible says, in God's inestimable love for us and expressed in our love for one another. And we are to love God, not just with all our heart, but with all our soul. In Hebrew psychology, the soul is the instinctive or primitive faculty, more interior than our thinking and willing. Parker Palmer compares our soul to a wild animal within us that is untamed and frightened. Like that wild animal, our soul hides from view and must be coaxed out of hiding. Palmer sees in Jesus' call for us to love the Lord with all our soul, a calling to be whole and healed. Palmer writes, the divided life is a wounded life, and the soul keeps calling us to heal that wound. You see, deep is not just 
our, our words or our ideas or our intentions, but deep calls into the marrow of our lives. Wholehearted means with our hearts, from the very center of who we are, from the ground of our being. Discipleship is learning to love God with everything we are, everything we have, our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength. That's what we're after, deep, wholehearted discipleship, because that's what Jesus calls us to. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In terms of the lessons that's gone before, we're not just people who understand justification and adoption intellectually. We are people learning to grasp from the heart what it means that we are justified and adopted and united to Christ. We see idolatry in relational terms to the living God who's jealous for our worship. We see repentance not so much as in behavioral modification, but as living in step with our Father's will, empowered by His Spirit, and supported by His body. Our constant dependence on God, this keeps us humble, but our life is rooted in God's inexhaustible grace for us. It's His love that compels us to want to follow Him with all we've got. So in closing, what does it mean to be wholehearted? The writer Brene Brown writes, wholehearted living is about engaging in our lives from a place of worthiness. It means cultivating the courage, compassion, and connection to wake up in the morning and think, no matter what gets done and how much is left undone, I am enough. Close quote. But how can we know we're enough? Where can we find that sense of worthiness independent of what we've done or left undone? In the face of the mistakes we've made, sins we've committed, hurts we've perpetrated, where can we find the courage to give compassion to ourselves and others? Only in the gospel. Without God's voice, without God's good word pronounced over our lives, we are left only with our own words and our own voice. And Rudyard Kipling's story reminds us what we already knew to be true, that we can't live by our own wisdom. We're not strong enough, for we can't live up to our own standards. So how could our words ever finally bring us any lasting comfort? Only the gospel gives us a word from outside of us where the Lord our God comes to us and declares us to be worthy, not because of what we've done or left undone, not because of anything we do, good or bad, but only because Jesus Christ, he announces with all the authority of God, creator of heaven and earth, that we are forgiven, we are healed, and we are whole by his blood. He looks on us with compassion, and that gives us the courage to move out into this broken world with clear eyes and full hearts. We will only begin to love our God with all our hearts, all our souls, all our mind, and all our strength when we know in our hearts, in the center of who we are, that God loved us, our God loved us first, even while our hearts were set against Him, while our souls were in hiding, while our minds and strength were bent on trying to save our own lives by our own wills. The gospel is God's power for us to love God, our God, wholeheartedly because we know that He loved us wholeheartedly first. He invites us into His deep life of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, that's deep, wholehearted discipleship. We'll see you next week.